Welcome back to Chasing the Ghost Light, a podcast where I ask writers about the singular moments and stories that haunt them artistically. This podcast is produced by Three Girls Theater, a theater company dedicated towards developing new work by women writers. And this week's guest is Julia Jackson. Julia is a comedian and a solo artist. Among many ideas, she explores the moral grayness of addiction and the clarity of sobriety. In a solo show that she's developing with Three Girls Theater, Julia digs a long-forgotten ex-boyfriend from her lesbian closet and presents him to the world. The show is called Worst Boyfriend Ever. And I understand that this piece is about a relationship that you were in during your early 20s that you didn't start writing about until your 50th birthday. So I'm wondering what prompted you to revisit this relationship after 25 years? I think actually that's part of the show is, uh, yeah, why? I, I, I do think it was turning 50 and I have a line in the show that's accurate about I think sometimes it takes life being good and solid and calm kind of give you the courage to look back to times when it wasn't uh, I think any of those so-called landmark birthdays bring up uh, stuff I call them landmark because you know exactly who you are on the road to death <laughs> so turning 50 yeah. brought up a that's lot of stuff yeah oh you're too kind um, yeah I don't know I was just he, I just I kept thinking about him all of a sudden, um, and I was in a solo performance workshop, and I find that structured workshops with other artists often are really fruitful for me, really good, and yeah, just all of a sudden I was thinking about it, thinking of more importantly thinking about myself as a young woman. Sometimes you enter a workshop and you know exactly what you want to write about. Other times you're you know, tabula rasa, and so I was open. I, I just, I hadn't thought about it, and then boom, it was like right there. And uh, I, started, I started thinking about it. And during the course of the workshop, I realized how much I had been minimizing uh, the, uh, you know, God, you know, abuse is an overused word, but really forms of emotional abuse, maybe I was just doing it right there, minimizing, um, I didn't, I didn't realize it, and then I started thinking of it through the, with clarity of a 50-year-old woman where you kind of hopefully get to a point in life you're occupying your space more, you're holding your space more, you know who you are. And I was like, wow, this was far worse than I thought, and of course the challenge for me is always looking back through the lens of compassion for myself at that age. Um, in fact, just this morning I have a 12-year-old son, I said I'm going to say a big word, internalized misogyny. Uh, phrase and we talked about what that is so uh, I think that's yeah. kind of what was happening there it's just like oh this is just a lot of women and I was like I was exploring the question that often comes up and it's usually in a judgmental lens why do you stay why do these women stay you know I was also looking at that mm -hmm. in developing this piece with director David Ford what has it been like for you getting back into that headspace of being 24 and and being in this relationship? Very hard. Very hard. Um, I, I liken it to a situation I had. The first performance workshop I had was with W. Kamal Bell, who of course has gone on to greater things at CNN. And 
I was recounting my first year of high school. I was bullied like every day by this one kid. And he asked me to actually be him, be this boy. And I, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it was, it, was, it was hard. I'm still struggling with um, recounting who I was or being in that space. There's a scene when I'm uh, with uh, Rick's father and David was like, wow, he just kind of, something happened that was embarrassing. He was calling out the truth that his son was not very nice to me. And he's like, how would you react? Show me that, basically, shame or embarrassment. And wow, was it hard. It was very hard to return to her. Um, I'm still working on it, to be honest with you. It's a great answer, but uh, yeah, you have to get any kind of art, particularly solo performance, you have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, to truly go there and show that to the audience so I'm I'm trying to be brave with that and frankly I think with some stuff in our lives we just blank it out like we just it's just like there's nothing there um, there's some weird space yeah, between, yeah. there's some weird intermittent space between an actively repressed memory and a kind of just nothingness like a zero on a scale not in a negative number not in a positive number you're like in a zero space and I think I've been in zero space for a while with that, and I'm kind of inching out into the, the positive, literally. Hmm. Can you paint me a picture of what you were like at 24? At 24, I would say I was very, like a lot of people, some of this is not unique at all to me, uh, very mm-hmm. obsessed with proving I had my big girl pants on, and I could mm-hmm. live on my own. I could pay bills. I could have sex, right? Like, I'm independent. Yeah. I'm independent. And uh, I was living in Los Angeles. I'd gotten out of uh, college, and I wasn't doing jack. You know, I just uh, took this crappy job. I'd gotten fired from my first two jobs, and I just, I got this junky job managing the movie theater, and my mother, who are from the Midwest, is like, you have to stay for at least a year for your resume. I stayed for three. And I was just practicing what I thought was being grown up, and looking back, I think uh, very unconsciously, I was trying to prove to myself I wasn't gay. Like, look at me. I'm living with a man. So it's both proving I'm growing up and proving to myself I'm heterosexual, even though none of that was conscious. None of that battle had broken out in the open of my mind yet. This is all just me on hindsight looking back. Um, so I think I was just like, yeah, ha, ha, ha. I got a job, I'm this, I'm in LA, and California is very enticing when you're from the Midwest. Um, Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I was living in a space of proving things to people and myself instead of just, like I referred to earlier, you know, holding my space, knowing who I was. I had no clue. Um, Yeah, and also I was drinking and using drugs, and that didn't help. (laughs) That did not help (laughs) finding the path to Wow, you big old dyke, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> that was later when I got sober. <laughs> that reminds me of a bit that you did in your stand-up where you you joke about, you know, not realizing that you were gay until you became sober at 36. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, if in the sphere of this relationship with your ex-boyfriend, if there were moments that kind of started to make you think like, 
like this is kind of off or was or was it when you were writing about him in worst boyfriend ever where you started then to realize the morally gray moments where things like weren't quite right yeah i think that gray was 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 frightening i was just struggling with it um i think that kind of oogie feeling of Ugh, what is was just my life like i didn't question which is a terrible thing to say very low self-esteem and also not being present i wasn't present in any way shape or form there were moments of presence though in fact as i'm talking i distinctly remember um and it's sort of sad uh one night, my, my ex was a cocaine user, as was I, and um, mm-hmm. we were up, and we were really talking for a second. And I loved politics. I ended up, you know, getting a master's degree in public policy and love it. And I was, you know, going off about something that was in the news, and he was really odd. He's looking at me, and he's like, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. And it was this moment of realizing it was like. You know, a cellophane is clear. It was like it was cellophane mm-hmm. all over him. He was right there. He was talking to me, and I couldn't touch him. It was like, I don't know how to put it, like the, the whole relationship, everything. There was no way I could get through. It didn't matter that I could see him and talk to me. There was no way this was going to work. Like, And I mean at a really deep level of, of being emotionally present. Like this, this, this wasn't working. And it was, of course, it was a lot of that was the, the drugs, and it was a multi-layered moment of slight realization of many depressing levels. And I was like, "Oh, this this don't feel good. <sighs> Do more, you know, like <laughs> more cocaine. That'll help." Uh, I do remember that. It was a really sad moment of like, "Wow, wow." And I, I, at that point in my life, like I said, I wasn't present. I was deep into fantasy, which helps being a writer. Uh, but there's a line that gets crossed, right? Um, and I remember I, when I was in high school, I was really into General Hospital. <laughs> so, you younger viewers might not know what I'm talking about. To the point, I, I was a nut, okay? Like, I was way into escape, escapism, whether it was television, drugs, novels. Just, I was not, it wasn't a, a conscious temporary vacation from reality. The, the vacation was my reality, if you know what I'm saying. Like, I was just not present in my life. And I was in Los Angeles, I was looking for a job, and I remember all of a sudden I was in front of the Gower Street Studios, which is where General Hospital is filmed. And I was like, I'm here, I'm here, oh my God, and there's the gate, right? You know, you can get through it. All of a sudden it was like, reality with a capital R hit me like, so what, what happens? These people, these human beings, who are not these characters, are going to come out. First of all, I'm not talking to them. Like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I was like, yeah, that's a fantasy. This is reality. In fact, all there is is reality. And it was like, it was just gone gone from me. I was disabused of part of my escapism lifestyle in that moment, standing there on Gower Street. I was like, wow, I suck. I am not in my life. This is not real. But I didn't know what to do with that information. It just was like a, a depth charge that went down in my subconscious some more to blow up and have fissures and cracks up on the surface that later on would blow up everything and I got sober and yeah, reality's been a requ- acquired taste for me to be honest. Like I'm there now. Yeah. I'm there now, but yeah. I, I often say like I don't believe in epiphanies. 
in the sense of something you've never ever considered in your whole life just comes and there it is it's usually a series of these things and there's a straw that breaks the camel's back so i call them epiphanitos mm -hmm. epiphanitos little epiphanies and then <laughs> the whole thing falls apart so everything fell apart when i was like 37 <laughs> in a good way <laughs> yeah i in, in the writing process when you were working on this at age 50, what were some of the epiphanies that you were having as you were sort of rethinking this relationship? During the course, it's an eight-week workshop, I think. I started to talk about it, I think I'm on, by week two or three, I said out loud, like, well, he was a jerk, but, you know, he wasn't abusive. And then I had a week to think about that. And I was like, um, no, he was definitely emotionally abusive. And then by week four, I was like, well, but he was never physically abusive. And I thought about it. And it, there's a scene in the show where I'm recounting, we were in a car, we just had an argument and he lost it. And um, my first layer of memory was, wait a minute, he, he grabbed me by the back of the neck. He gunned the engine. There's a street called Angeles Vista. And he said, F it, F it. I'm going to drive us off Angeles Vista. And he gunned the engine. And I was like, oh, forget that. And I opened the door like, I'm going to jump. And I thought, by week five, I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, no. He grabbed me by the back of the neck to stop me from exiting the vehicle. That's what it was. And then during that ensuing week, get up to week six or five, I was like, then I remembered this vision of him going all the way across my body and grabbing the door and shutting it so that I wouldn't jump. I was like, no, he just grabbed me by the back of the neck to scare me and say, I'm gonna drive this car up a cliff. So literally it took three weeks of thinking about it to really remember what happened, even to classify that as a form of abuse. And that's what I mean by internalized oppression, you know, like, Minimize, minimize, yeah. minimize. And uh, yeah, and I was 50 at that point, fully 50. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, that really happened. Huh. Yeah, it's because we have this line of demarcation in our society. Like, well, did you get hit? Well, it doesn't really count if you didn't get hit. Or how hard did they hit you? Or how many times, you know. It's like, no. The whole thing was messed up. You know, there was many things. And, and this is the gray you were referring to, he could be really wonderful. He could be very sweet. He had been a gentleman. I mean, there was, we had some good memories. So that's where, as a young woman, I got very confused about what was happening. You know, I didn't know what to do because I was really confused. And what didn't help the confusion is buttloads of cocaine and marijuana and alcohol, uh, you know, on a daily basis. So, yeah, there was just gray 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 you know and i think that's what it, it's very easy to portray men who take the bait of misogyny which they're designed to take by the way and are do have are abusive right and we don't want to see the gray there just like with racism it's very easy in culture although it's it's changing now thank god in the last few years, but there's still this tendency to say, well, you're not a racist unless you're a fat-bellied southern sheriff who's hanging people and shooting, right? Like, we we can't see the gray. The gray. Oh, you can be very woke 
you can be doing this and that, but you are, you, you can act in racist ways, you know, and you love your kids and you're nice to your neighbor, right? There's all this stuff. Life is great. It is not black and white. And, and you know, at 24, I was just in no way, shape or form able to appreciate that, mm-hmm. you know? So I think for years, all I thought was he was bad, but I was stupid. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'd also wanted to ask you about one moment that to me really kind of like represents a, a shift in, in the relationship. Um, and it's where you tell Rick to not point his finger and he says, a man's home is his castle, period. I will not be disrespected. If a man isn't respected, he isn't a man. And if I'm not a man, then there's no me, no us. So I'm wondering, what was this moment like? And how do you understand it differently looking back? There was a confrontation. And I think it was after the July 4th incident. And I can't repeat what was said, um, saying cuss words and all that, but it was very much, uh, well, I mean, can we say cuss words on here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, there is, there's a phrase, there's a phrase which a lot of people don't understand, but he got mad. First it was jokingly, but then he was serious. He's, he was talking about stay out of my family business and he was doing something and he said, I'm fucking this cat. You just hold the tail. Now that's a really gross reference but it's it, it really captures a lot of what was going on there and it, yeah it was kind of like shut up you know you, this is this is how it is this is how i am is it oh i know what he would say is it gonna be like that is it gonna be like that like it's it's a very aggressive and i was like well, no you know because you have this misogyny business you have people pleasing behavior <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff like wow i don't know what just happened here I don't like this, but it's barely being in touch with I don't like this. And again, I keep referring to these layers for myself only of drug and alcohol use that <clears throat> distanced me between what I was actually feeling and thinking. But, you know, prior to that, like I talk about fantasy life. I mean, I didn't use anything until I was 15 or 16, but I had a well-worn track record by that point of escapism and denial. And mm-hmm. kids, kids do what they have to do. You know, I, I grew up in Milwaukee, which is the most segregated city in the country. It's, you know, as a brown-skinned person, regardless of the neighborhood I lived in, regardless of having one white parent, it was not good from the racial trauma perspective. And I had a hard time. I was also very, you know, masculine presenting. That was not going to go well for me either. So, and it was a different... Milwaukee still screwed up, even though there's nice people there. And I enjoy visiting, visiting, but you know, this is in the sixties and seventies, so it was even worse. Uh, so yeah, I, I escaped. So like, that's what I comment about reality being acquired taste. I was not interested in being present. <laughs> and then I found magical, yeah. magical Budweiser and there you go. There you go. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting what you say about the system being set up for for men to take the bait. Um, is that something 
when did you become, you know, aware of this, this dynamic? Much later, much later, much later. I think as a child, I know everyone loves to be proclaimed themselves as the world's bitterest ex-Catholic. Not me. I had a, actually a positive experience when I was young in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Christianity, and, and as I knew it, mm-hmm. as I experienced it at that time, a love and forgiveness were always a part of who I was. Now, of course, one can take forgiveness way too far, but I will say that it helped me set up a forgiveness framework and looking at a bigger picture. What's the bigger picture here with these systems? I would say in the last 10 years or so, I always knew as a biracial person, like, wait a minute, something's not right here because here are these white people around me who are quite kind and nice or a part of my family and ooh, this is being said that's been going on I'm confused like I wait a minute I just knew on a gut level something more was going on here and I see people I saw people sort of pitted against each other and I was like oh, man something ain't right and then in the black community of course my father's side of the family you learn I would say even some people say cynical I think it's more realistic view of institutions and how they work or don't work and to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, being like, something's not right. Um, I don't know, I just saw that, that don't fall for the okie doke. Like, people being pitted against each other. I saw it. I just didn't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And then, like anything else, as you grow older and you get more sophisticated view of the world, you kind of make better connections. Like, okay, okay. There's the real boogeyman in the room is racism, it's misogyny, it's sexism, it's all kinds of stuff. And everyone's, somebody's Geppetto, man. Somebody's the puppet master. Something is making people act poorly with each other. And I always try to see people's humanity. I saw a podcast with Joe Rogan. I don't know who the guest was, but they were talking about this purported cancel culture. I won't get into discussions of that, but the guy said something I do agree with. And he said, we need a new concept of forgiveness in this country. We just can't see the gray, right? And, And it's like, look. The people aren't the problem, it's the policies, it's the systems. And that's the point of that, how to be an anti-racist book, he talks about that. Stop going after people, which is different than accountability. You absolutely have accountability, but I, I always tell people, beware of being self-righteous and judgmental because your turn at the whipping post is coming. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to whatever. So, you know, you can hold people accountable and yet be not self-righteous, right? Like, people oftentimes I find discussions about race or whatever break down around the intent, the role of intent. I didn't mean it, I'm a nice person, why are you getting so worked up? And they always say impact trumps intent, and that is true. My thing is intent does have a role, and that role for me is the manner in which I talk to you. You're still gonna get a correction. You're still gonna have me hold you accountable. The question is that it won't be from a perch of self-righteousness, right? Yeah. Like, when I have those discussions, uh, depending on the type of relationship I want to maintain with the person, I can say with respect, you were disrespectful. I can say with respect, I've been in your shoes, I've made that same mistake, and I want you to know that what you did is inappropriate. I find myself often having that conversation because my son is adopted, and people say highly inappropriate things and questions surrounding his adoption. And I was that person too, to some degree, before I became a mother through adoption. So yeah, I know that's a meandering answer. Mm-hmm. 
I also wanted to ask you about your Condoleezza Rice joke, which I know that you told 16 years ago, but that this particular joke has haunted you since. So could you describe what that moment was like and why it stayed with you for so long? Yeah, that was a bad that was a bad moment. I was at the Sacramento punchline, it was a long time ago. I think George Bush had just been reelected. And at the to put it in context, uh, it, you know, everyone in the Bay Area in our bubble, whatever it was just like, please do better, please do better. And he was appointing some members new members of his cabinet. And he appointed Condoleezza Rice as Secretary of State. And at that point in time, nobody liked her because of her role, perceived role, true or not, in the, the war in Iraq, the decision to go to war in Iraq. So the joke was really centered around, damn, dude, really? Really? You had a chance to <laughs> pick somebody better, and you picked her. So that's kind of where I was going. And at the time, Omarosa yeah. was, had, was fresh off The Apprentice. And I mean, the level of Omarosa hate was, I think, was never higher than during her time mm. on The Apprentice. So the joke was, you really, you, you appointed Condoleezza Rice. Why don't you just appoint Omarosa? That's another black bitch nobody can stand. Now, in my mind, that was hilarious. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I don't present as African-American. I don't know. I'll never know. But there was a black couple in the, they weren't in the front row, but they were right in the center. And the look on her face and their face when I said that joke, it was horrible. Like I knew the minute it was out of my mouth, that sounded terrible. Terrible. There's ways I probably could have redone it. And believe me, I've gone over that in my mind a million times. And they were, there's a look if you're in a press group of, masked or thinly veiled hurt because you got to keep surviving you know it's just like again and, and as a female like i go in comedy clubs it's not a it's still not the most friendly place you know because you just know some dude's gonna be up there saying some messed up stuff about females and i felt like i'm the dude now only it's a race issue i'm the dude i have just said something seemingly attacking and yeah i can still see their face i mean i just was like can't get it back. I did it. Um, so, yeah, and a lot of my work explores this question of forgiveness, generally around race issues. And I know we got to wrap this up soon, but I would just say I was at a bus stop in San Francisco and stopped, helped stop an assault many years ago against an Asian man by somebody. And it was ugly. And the guy ended up having a grand mal seizure, and it was just, you know. So I have a degree in martial arts, and I helped them. A bunch of people were fighting. It was awful. Like, I did that, right? And I could easily break my arm off patting myself on the back. about <laughs> I'm a hero. I stopped an anti-Asian hate thing 15 years ago. But the truth is, in 1983, when I was drunk and 20, I had a BB gun on a porch. I was laughing. You know? And there was an Asian guy on a bike. And I was like, ha-ha, poop. I did that. We didn't have the word hate crime in 1983. I did that. And it could, you asked that question about would you get the awareness? Like literally 15, 20 years later, I was like, oh my God, did I just commit a hate crime when I was 20 and I was drunk? Like I didn't even have the awareness. So two things can be true at the same time. I did that and, you know, I helped stop further assault on an Asian man at a bus stop. Hmm. Same person. Wow. So life is great, man. Circling back to you know that that uh, the, the dark moment, 
that you had at the Sacramento Punchline. How did that joke shift your your comedy going forward? I'll post that joke, what happened. I did have a, I think, after that, well, I never told that joke again, number one. But, yeah, I do, I, I, and I think it was after that, I have a whole bit about being in line at the DMV and how, yeah. you know, all of a sudden the whites, the blacks, and Latinos are united and hating on the Asian person. Then something else happens, and the Asians, the whites, and the Latinos are together hating on the black person. It's like this moving alliances and self-righteousness. Yeah. So I'm making fun of all of us, all of us doing this. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I would say I, I, I dropped that <laughs> kind of that specific joke and definitely I like to explore those things about race on stage although the the times I'm fearless on stage of course like anything else you're talking about your own experience it's why I'm more fearless with solo performance than comedy but within comedy when I'm talking about my alcoholism when I'm talking about being biracial I'm gonna go there that's me that is my life I remember I was at Josie's Juice Trump which doesn't exist anymore they had a gay comedy night and I made a joke about my hair, something about being biracial. And there was some white women in the audience, and they were like, oh. And I was like, bitch, what? I said, this is my life. I got over it. What are you doing? What are you doing? You know? <laughs> anyway. And I actually, I say that, but I don't even use that word anymore, bitch. I don't, I kind of stay away from it unless it's appropriate. There's a specific female acting badly. Because at this point in our culture, bitches become just like, Hey, see that girl over there? Like, it's literally, see that bitch, that bitch over there? Like, what? Like, we just overuse that thing. Yeah. I, I know that you've mentioned that recovery audiences are your favorite audiences to perform for as a comedian. Um, is there material that you'll do for for those audiences that you won't do for for others? Yeah. I mean, I think I might do it, but people don't appreciate it as much. It's not an offended thing. It's just, I, I like doing service when I'm in a service mode in any aspect of my life, and that includes comedy. Life just seems to go better. So I love doing recovery conventions, which I do, because you want to tell people who are new to being sober, you can still have fun. And one of the best ways to do it is laughing at yourself, yeah. laughing mercilessly at yourself about, man, like for mm-hmm. me, uh, what's that joke I do? Like, yeah, I was so drunk, like you said, I didn't know I was gay until I was 36. You know, and I can't repeat, well, I'll tell a joke later. <laughs> I have some raw material that's quite funny about playing for the wrong team for years. Because <laughs> I'm cracking up at myself. And, and especially gay comedy shows, gay people, recovered or not, they get that. They know. Many of us were forced into it or just, ugh. It's like, I can't believe I was hooked up with this, whatever the gender that ain't right fit in your life, you know. And you laugh, you laugh at yourself, but it's from a uh, lens of compassion, right? I'm not attacking someone else, like I was with that horrible joke about comedy's life. I am laughing at myself, and in the process, hopefully helping someone else. And that's kind of where I want to go with all of my artwork. The last thing I'd wanted to ask you about is you had mentioned previously in an interview that you 
feel like you become the person that you're meant to be when you write. Could you speak a little bit about the space that you transcend into while writing? I feel like I'm in my God space. I feel like all I'm doing is channeling my truth to help others. I'm not trying to hurt anybody with it. I'm emotionally present. I know who I am at whatever point of the journey I'm at, and I'm sharing that. That's it. Like, I, I don't like art with an agenda. Uh, yeah. Uh, I just, you know, it's like a gift. A gift with no strings attached if it's done right. Here, this is, I mean, you're supposed to be entertaining, 100%. Come on, Bill, I remember he's the one that told me that. <laughs> Gotta be entertaining. Uh, but it's like, hey, this is how, has been my experience, or this is how I see life, or this is whatever. Do what you will with it. You know? And that's the space I like to be in. You know, as opposed to beating you over the head with my reality. <laughs> Because people will, will, once you write it, once it's out of the page, or when it's out of your mouth, people will do what they want with it. You know, they will interpret it, you know, and still take something that works for them from it, even if they totally misunderstood, in my opinion, what it was about. You have no control over what people do with your short story, with your solo show, with your music, with whatever. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. They'll be touched in whatever way they're touched or not. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just feel calm. I feel centered when I'm uh, more in solo performance than the comedy, to be honest. But, yeah, I just feel like I'm, I'm channeling some kind of power greater than myself, something. I don't know what. I feel calm. I, I feel the exact opposite of that cocaine-infused moment with this cellophane wrap over everything in my life that I couldn't touch or see or feel or hear. That's gone. Hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Where can people read about you and what you're doing? www.juliajackson.com and I'm updating the site for uh, some Three Girls Theater stuff that's uh, coming up. We're doing a table read next week. Uh, latest iteration of Worst Boyfriend Ever and hopefully we'll be filming that live when we all get back to whatever is the world. Thank you for listening. This has been Chasing the Ghost's Light. You can find out more about Julia Jackson at www.juliajackson.com. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it on social media or wherever you exist on the internet. Our music is from the band Thrown Out Bones. This podcast was edited by Nicholas Angleton and Chasing the Ghost Light is produced by Three Girls Theatre.